Hello everybody, my name is Ruben Spalter, I'd love to, I'd, I'd love to, I am welcoming you to a yet another edition of RZ Weekly. Welcome. Uh, I'm here with my good friend and colleague, Harab Johnny Solomon. Hello, Harab Johnny. Hello, good morning and uh, good morning, afternoon, evening to all our listeners. Thank you. And I'm here with Harabinit Mali Pravsky. Uh, hello, Harabinit Mali. Hi, how are you doing? Uh, just as an aside, we're not going to discuss this, hopefully we'll discuss it in the future. When did they start calling you Rabbanit? I think the awareness of the importance of finding a way to address women um, who had a certain amount of knowledge. It's, I think it's been building for the past three, five, seven years, maybe earlier in other institutions. Um, and I, but I think I've been, people have been starting to ask me what they should call me from that perspective. I'd say, yeah, that, that's around, I think, the time frame. And for three me, to five it's, years. Interesting. I, I, but I think other places, like in Lindenbaum, it could have been even earlier they were talking. I mean, in, in, in institutions, this is not our topic, but it's worth mentioning. In institutions where, like, um, they, specifically in Israeli institutions, right, where they were calling, like, the men, they were calling people by their first names. So it would be Rav Alex and Rav, you know, whatever, Ohad. And the women would be Molly. just their Molly, Shani, Sally. I didn't like that at all. At MMY, they're much more formal anyway. So the Ravs, and it's also not Israeli. So it would be Rav last name and Mrs. last name, which I found uh -huh. much more equal. So I think I, I found it very problematic that that men were getting a rub and women were getting nothing. So um, that's when that's when I really decided I'm, like we're, we're definitely going to come back to this, but this is not yeah. our topic today. Johnny, you had, to, you had you wanted to mention something about this, or you want to come back to it? No, I mean it's it's a whole different thing. What's interesting? You, how come you didn't ask me that question? And I when say they that not, you rub when you got your smicha. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you why. You. Because the point is, they did way before I got smicha. Meaning, ah. it's it's there, there is a smicha which gives a certain formal validation. But nevertheless, I have always said to people who want to be rabbi, if you want to be a rabbi, be a rabbi before you get the smicha. And actually, it's because ultimately it's to do with a certain loyalty, commitment, love, you know, passion for for learning, teaching, uh, and being a dogma. And if we understand it that way, then that's, I think... Uh, Wait, so you're, you're saying that it's self-smicha, you, you can call yourself anything you want? You can self-smicha? Uh, uh, in, in the world in which we live, most certainly. Okay, is. anyway. That is not our topic today, although it's a fascinating discussion, which would, will have to be a topic in the near future. Today we're going to, uh, I'm going to switch gears just very, very, very abruptly, even though there's no way, good way to do this. This is a week after the Mayron tragedy, and we, we felt we didn't want to do a whole episode on, on it. There's, there's so much has been said, so much has been uh, 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 talked about. Uh, we, we each of us wanted to say a few, just a brief idea, a brief thought. So I'm going to share my thought first, and then I'll turn to Johnny and Molly. The only thing that I, I, I think about, uh, and I'm not here to, we're not, I don't believe we're not here to, you know, to, to do a, a, a va'ada, to have a whole committee and find out, you know, the technical aspects. But one thing that struck me is that when learning about the Mayron tragedy, the number of people that were there was far, far, far less than the average number of people that had been there in the, pri in the previous years. Meaning, Meaning, like in two years or three years ago, there was 200,000, 300,000, 400,000 people, and this year there was 100,000. And yet, this same, this same, the same tragedy took place. And truth be told, very honestly, I don't know if you needed more than two or 3,000 at that, at that bottleneck for the tragedy to take place. And if you listen to the journalists who were talking afterwards, everybody knew about this problem, everybody was aware of it. Anybody who'd ever been there found that exit frightening. And what they said was, the thing that struck me was, the thing that I heard was, it's a nace that it hadn't happened before. It was always a nace that it hadn't happened. And I thought about that, and I thought to myself, 
And for this year, for whatever reason, Am Yisrael did not merit that, I would call it, uh, overarching hashgacha, that nes. That every year, I, I mean, like, you know, the, my, my son is in the army, and he says, Abba, you have no idea what's going on, you, you know, and I'm not going to say where and how, he's like, but he, gets, he gives us that sense also, that there are things going on that we don't understand, that there's Yad Hashem involved. And so, to me, when, when we don't have that overarching protection, when, when a natural thing happens, and I believe it was a, it was a natural event, given the, given the amount of people in that space and the bottleneck and, and all of that, we didn't merit divine protection. And that's something for us to ask ourselves, all of us, all of Klai Yisrael, why not? And what can we do to change that situation? And I think that's a message that I, I, try, I try to think about. I wasn't there. I, I don't go to Meron, but it could have happened really at any time in any given place. How do we merit that special Yad Hashem? Johnny, your thoughts. I thought I had thoughts, and then I listened to what you said, and I have different thoughts. So what I'm going to do is, actually, I'm going to do what RZ Weekly does, which is kind of be in the moment and respond to what each of us is saying. Um, and I'm actually going to take you up on what you said. You said it was a nest. It didn't happen earlier. And I have to say, I am exceedingly wary to ever s speak with certainty about Nisim. Truth is to speak with certainty about the way of God. Um, things could have happened previously, things did happen this year. Uh, our heart goes out to all those who've lost family members, who's, who've been injured, etc., and we wish them uh, a But in fact, just a couple of days afterwards, there are people using the word Ness in terms of those who were in the crush, who were able to survive. And uh, Rabbi Joshua Berman shared a very, very simple thought, which had already been on my mind, but he gave it uh, some kind of framework which very much spoke to me. And he said, reflecting on an event that took place in his life in 1992, and I'm going to quote his words, I pulled up a chair to Rav Amital's table in the Bet Midrash of Yeshivat Haratzion. The day before, my wife had been a passenger in a car that was demolished in a collision, resulting in two fatalities next to her, one a star pupil in the Yeshiva. Michal climbed out of the wreck without so much as a scratch. Harav, I asked Rav Amital, when Michal travels again around that bend, should she recite the blessing of Shasali Ness, who's done a miracle for me at this site? Rav Amital, himself a survivor, had married us just two months prior, looked off in the contemplation. And we sat in silence, and then he said, two people perished. What miracle? Of course, that, what that means is people should be very wary to speak of miracles when bad things happen and even when bad things don't happen we should be wary to speak confidently about miracles that's not to say that miracles don't occur but it is to say that I don't know who has a formula to know when they do and when they don't and similarly I don't know who has a formula to know the rats on Hashem and over the past few days uh, ever since that terrible tragedy I've heard too many what I would call even false prophets speaking with confidence and we've Previously, he's talked about this confidence which Robert Lichtenstein often was very critical of about what they know of Ratzon Hashem. All I know is that when people mourn, our task is to be with them. When the nation mourns, our task is to be with each other. In terms of Tikkunim, there are many suggestions. Most certainly, it's if we know of a site which could be dangerous, it is to make it less dangerous. I think in terms of literally Tikkun, we should take that word, you know, keep shuto. Uh, and I'll end just one uh, brief thought. 
I didn't mention to you, but uh, uh, this morning I went to, to seek some spiritual counsel from what I think is one of the most remarkable spiritual guides of our generation, Rabbi Racheli Frankel. Uh, and as it happens, just after the Miron uh, tragedy, I shared a story I'd heard from her two weeks previously, which I won't repeat it now, but simply emphasize the notion that Amisrael is a family. And I was startled as to how significant this message was. Uh, it sp spoke to so many people, was shared by so many people. And I don't, I don't write to have popular posts. I write because I think there's ideas worthy of sharing. But when things are very, very popular, it tells us that it's touched a nerve. What the Miron tragedy highlighted to me is, firstly, again, we, one shouldn't be so sure about why things occur and certainly why God does certain things, nor so certain about missing whether they are or they're not, etc. Life itself is a miracle. What I do know is this disaster reminded us that we are a people, we are a family, that we care. And when a, your family hurts, and it hurts you on the inside, this affirms this notion of Jewish peoplehood, this affirms this idea of being part of the mishpacha called Am Yisrael. Mali. Okay. I'll, um, Johnny quoted Racheli Frankel. I'm going to quote another wise person who I, who I'm going to say two things. So the first thing is I'm going to quote a wise person named um, Rev. Johnny Solomon, who um, in an internal discussion sent uh, a little vort of his, I don't know where he got it from, I'm going to call it his own, but that um, has been really stuck with me ever since he said it, which is um, wh when there's a loss, when there's a tragedy, when there's, when there's a death, we say Baruch Dayan Emet. Um, and the words Emet, he, and again, this is B'Shem Jani, the Aleph of Emet. I wrote it. The truth is, I didn't know you were going to share this, but yes, I, I wrote this during a time, well, last year when there was another tragedy in a community very dear to me, and I shared it because yeah. people apparently needed to hear this it's message. It's a beautiful message. The Aleph of Emet is, um, right, we call them Sifrei Emet. Aleph is Eov, um, which Eov is the Sefer, is, is the work that reminds us of what Johnny was talking about, which is we don't you know, have answers. We always want to have answers. It's a very human instinct, and the answer of Eov is there are no answers. Um, and that's a very, I think it's a very fundamental thing to remember. Um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, my second thing I'm going to also talk about, people, they really, they're, they're searching so hard for meaning, and one of the ways you search for meaning is to try to find answers, and the ultimate cosmic answers are not there, um, and kind of to know that. Mishle, all right, the mem is for Mishle, um, which is the work of... Uh, What's it in English? Proverbs, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. And that's about knowing how to speak wisely. Um, and I think that's a very, very important message, especially in a tragedy like this. What you say, when you say it, how you say it. I think people are feeling a lot of tiskul and a lot of anger um, and um, a lot of crisis of faith and everybody's in mourning. And I think, um, I think it's important when, when one speaks uh, that doesn't mean that there. I'm not saying there are things we should talk about, things we shouldn't talk about. We should be able to talk about everything, but we should talk about things appropriately and carefully and with sensitivity. Uh, the timing should be sensitive. The tone should be sensitive. And again, that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about things, right? I've seen a lot of like, well, now is not the time. Okay, but if we're not going to talk about when and when we should, and we have to talk about them. It's like, for example, what Johnny alluded to with like, you know, fixing the safety issues. Yes, we should talk about fixing the the, the safety issues. But again, I think tone. An approach is important in the way we formulate. And um, tough is for Tehillim. And Tehillim is David HaMelech's, um, I'm saying this in my words, this is not Johnny's words, but this is what I took from what Johnny said. The way I see Sefer Tehillim is it's um, David HaMelech, or the human being constantly in dialogue with God. 
and the awareness that the kind of the flip side of the Aleph of we don't have answers is at the same time, um, we know and we trust and we believe that God is there and that he's a shoulder to lean on, right? The way Lichtenstein talks about it is um, we, 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 he's holding everything and we believe that everything is un, under his, his providence and he's also the shoulder that we cry on when a terrible thing happens, right? Even if we attribute, we, we say, okay, he, on whatever level we understand hashkacha, allowed it to happen, made it happen, saw it happen, chose whatever, however you see it or don't see it, he's still the, he's still the shoulder that, that we cry on and he's still the, we still believe that he's the master of the universe and in charge of everything. And I'll just end with the, with the different message which is connected, which is, um, you know, my, my students are, are having a terrible time as I imagine we all are. Um, they were actually at my own, a lot of them, not all. Um, and um, something I've been sharing with them is, is, and this comes from Stephen Covey, who wrote uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, but this is, it's not just in Stephen Covey, he just says it in the, in the simplest way, and I might have even mentioned this in the podcast before, it talks about the circle of, of concern and the circle of control. Right? You have this large circle of things that you care about and that are important to you and that matter to you, and that's a very, very big circle. Within that circle is a smaller circle. That's called the circle of control. That's where you can actually um, do things that, that, that you could, there are things that you can control, that you can affect, that you can, um, where you can have influence and impact. And the mistake people make, and meaning wisdom in life is knowing what is outside of your circle of, of, of control, but is in your circle of concern. And that part, and I'll, I'll just say this is, you know, usually I temper it to who I'm talking to, but on this context, I'll say to me, right now for me, that's the part you just give over to God. And wisdom is knowing where you can control, and that's, that's where you focus your energies. And I think people can often make two mistakes, right? To think everything's in my circle of control, and then they over, right? That's where worry and anxiety comes from. You try to control things that are not in your circle of control. Or, let's see, in a tragedy like this, nothing is in my circle of control, and, and there's, you know, there's no meaning, and I don't understand anything, and what's the point of anything? And I think in a, in a tragedy like this, it's like knowing, again, this is the wisdom of the emet, of knowing what's out of my circle of control and leaving that up to God, as Johnny was talking about, um, but also knowing what is in my circle of control. I thought, Rubu, it's what you were talking about, right? And whether that's very practically um, making sure there's a vadzat chakira and that things change um, in a very fundamental level, and or whether that's personally, how am I going to make meaning out of this? What do I want to do um, in my own life to, you know, for me, for example, I heard a lot about Donnie Morris because he was the, you know, seminary, uh, the, the yeshiva student who died, and a lot of seminary students knew him. Um, what am I going to take from his life? How am I going to keep his, his legacy going? And, uh, you know, he was a boy of a tremendous um, Talmud Torah, tremendous kindness and tremendous sweetness. So, like, you know, what am I going to do in my circle of control to, to keep for myself, right, to, to, to make meaning of his legacy? Um, and so that, that, those are kind of two ideas that are interconnected that I, you know, that's what I've been thinking about this week. Thanks to both of you. Um, we're going to take a quick break. And we'll come back with our, with our main topic. This episode of RZ Weekly is brought to you by Kita for Home Plus. We all know families whose children are not studying in formal Jewish education for any number of reasons. Could be COVID, could be the school wasn't right for them, could be financial, but they still are looking for a meaningful Jewish learning solution for their children. That's why we created Kitaf for Home Plus. Kitaf for Home Plus is modeled after the world-famous Khan Academy using flipped learning, YouTube videos, and Google Forms 
to allow children to learn classic Judaic subjects, Mishnah, Chumash, and Gemara, on their own time, on their own schedule, in a way that's exciting and meaningful for them to learn. We're starting a new semester of Kitab for Home called Kitab for Home Plus, in which children will learn three courses, Mishnah, Chumash, and Gemara, each week, plus have a Zoom lesson to meet with the teacher, that would be me, as well as interact with other students in the class. Kitab for Home lessons are designed for students in middle school from grades five through grades eight and focus on basic skills, decoding of text, understanding of shorashim, critical skills that children need that serve as a foundation for Jewish learning throughout their lives. To learn more, log on to kita.org slash home plus. That's kita, K-I-T-A-H dot O-R-G slash Home Plus. And now, back to the show. Okay, and we are back. Um, now turning, I guess, the 90-degree angle. Today, we want to discuss that recent, uh, I don't know if you call it a celebration, because I haven't really seen anything about it other than some articles, but the chief rabbinate over the past year is marking its 100th anniversary. 100 years of the, since the founding of the Rabbanuta Rashid, with the Rav Cook, with the great celebration, with the, this idea of having a central rabbinate in the Holy Land that would serve as sort of a centralizing rabbinic uh, organization, ultimately for the entire world. You know, at that time, the, the prominent rabbis were mainly in Europe. There was, there was tremendous rabbinic power and forces, basically in Eastern and Western Europe. So it was a, it was a fledgling organization. But since that time, we, we're not going to discuss the history, but we want to discuss uh, a fundamental question that actually is the subject of great debate in the modern Orthodox world today, the religious Zionist world even today. I would say it's, it's, it's a subject of debate. Most people, uh, on the, I would say, on the more religious side don't like to have this debate, but it's an important debate nonetheless, which is, is it a good thing in today's day and age that there is a, a central rabbinate that has power in Israel enforced by law to impose Jewish practice on people. Now, I think nobody would have a problem if there was a chief rabbi who got up and made the bracha and gave the benediction at the opening of the Knesset and, you know, read to him at Yom HaZikaron. Nobody would have a problem with that. Lovely, if it was a ceremonial chief rabbinate. But this is not that chief rabbinate. This is a chief rabbinate that not only does those things and is supposed to do those things, not only oversees kashrut and weddings and is supposed to do those things and divorces and other areas of religious life funerals and what have you, but also has the, to, the teeth of Israeli law behind it and, and actually guards the power that it has with incredible fierceness. So not only does it, did it, it decide what is and what is not kosher in Israel, it also it forbids and enforces that prohibition that anyone else should have the right to say kosher in Israel unless it also agrees that something is kosher. It has a monopoly on kashrut. It was given exclusivity on kashrut, and it protects and defends that monopoly. Weddings, obviously, is the most popular area. I mean, I don't know if you, both Molly and Johnny know. If you're a listener, you, you know that I work for Irgun Rabbanate Sohar, which which uh, which does weddings within the construct of the rabbinut. I'll come back and explain because it's very unclear what Sohar's position about the rabbinate is. But the rabbinut has the exclusive right to or the exclusive authority over Jewish marriage in Israel. 
if you want to get married, you have to get married through the chief rabbinate. And therefore, you have to accept the definition of what is a Jew and what is a wedding according to the definition of the Rabbanut Rashid. Or you cannot get married as a Jew in Israel. I mean, you can, you can run off to Cyprus or whatever, but to many people, that's, that's troubling. That's difficult. So, Johnny, I'm going to start with... No, no, actually, not Johnny. Johnny's busy working. I think he's reading through Mishpat Ivri as we, as we, as we just talk here. <laughs> you were reading through Mishpat Ivri. Well, let's start with Molly. Molly, talk to us about this notion as uh, this conflict on the one hand some of the positives in your mind or some of the negatives, and where do you come down? Yeah. Do you like having a chief rabbinate with teeth? Or would you, like, would you like a chief rabbinate with no teeth? Or what could you do without a chief rabbinate at all in today's day and age? Okay. Take it so away, Molly. It's a really complex question. Um, that's, what, that's what we're here for. Yes, we don't, we don't exactly. take the easy stuff. So I'm not gonna, we're not going to have answers. I'll just, I'll just give some reflections. So the, one of the things that comes to my mind is um, when... when um, when Alon Shvat elected, we, we, we have uh, Rav Yishuv, uh, Rav Yishuv, we also have Rav Eishuna, um, Rav Pearl has been, he was officially also Rav Yishuv until he retired. It doesn't matter, I just want to give him the covet he, he deserves. Rav Rimon is the Rav of our, commu- of our community show, Rav Pearl was, is the Rav of the old Shkuna, and I'm not sure if he had the position of Rav Yishuv. At this point, Rav Weitman is the Rav of our Yishuv, Rav Zev Weitman. And when he was elected to be the Rav Yishuv, he said the following thing. He said uh, something like, I'm very honored to have this position, and this position comes with samchut and authority. But I also want to say that my authority comes from you. It comes from the people. Um, mm. If you have faith in me, if you give me your imun, right, if you, if you trust me to lead you, right, that's essentially where the source of my authority comes from, which is not to say that he's not going to say things that, that people don't agree with here or there. That's his job. His job is to, is to be brave enough and strong enough to make decisions in places where people don't want to make decisions. But a fundamental sense that the community is behind him and trusts him. And he kind of said, you know, I need to, I, you know, I, I'm honored that you put that trust in me. And part of my role is to maintain that trust. And I think that that's sort of how I think well, about it. Well, you could say the same thing about governments in general. That's a Maybe. huge issue. Right. About, that's, you know, actually, you're very correct. Very correct. And I think that there are cultures that are falling apart because um, people don't trust gov- their governments anymore. And that's a really good point. Um, yeah as we try to put it up <laughs> here, here in Israel saying. and maybe go into fifth elections, which who knows. Anyway, um, but, so, but so when I think about the Rabbanut Rashi, that's what I would like it to be, right? Like, like I, I don't know if I want to get into this tricky question of like, should it have teeth, shouldn't it have teeth? I'll tell you again, when I was preparing to give this podcast that I gave for Ortura Stone about Rav Kook and Rav Soloveitchik, so I did a lot of work, you know, about just looking at Rav Soloveitchik and Zionism. And he was... You know, uh, uh, listen, this, the, on the one hand, he turned down the position of chief rabbinate, and I'll get to that in a second, but he was absolutely crystal clear that he thought that it was very important that there be a body that had power, and he wasn't, and I don't know, he wasn't necessarily talking the chief rabbinate, he was talking, let's say, about Mizrahi, but, and, but being in, po- in politics, and he was like counted among its victories that that the religious world was able to kind of oversee marriage and divorce and, um, you know, conversion. And that was important to him. And he wasn't afraid to say that, right? The problem starts to happen, right? And, and, I, and I think that, that if we could create a body that, that had the fundamental trust of the people, I don't think I would be opposed to it having teeth um, because I, I think that that, that is important. Um, and, and, okay, here's, here's the problem, right? The problem is that over the years, right, 
the body has lost the trust of the people and for good reason. Um, it, because of a combination of bureaucracy, because of monopoly, and because of politics, it has turned into a bureaucratic, um, uh, I don't know what you would call it, a bureaucratic um, organization. Um, it's become a political organization. It's in the hands of only one stream of religiosity. It's, in, it's, it's, it's the Haredim have a monopoly over the, also the chief rabbinate and also the people who are manning the, um, the Batei Din. And it, it, it is no, it, it's not providing the service that it's meant to provide. Um, it's, it, and it's, Wait, it's, so those are two different problems. On the one hand, you're saying, if it provided the services it was wait. meant to provide, that okay, would be wait, good so, and you'd so, be in favor of it. And you'd be in favor of it with enforceability. I, I might. So, uh, so this is what I want to say about this, right? Then let me just finish the thought and then you can, t you can like find the holes or where you disagree. Well, I'm not looking for holes. I'm looking yeah, for, uh, to clarify. To discuss. Yes, yes. So, so but I think, so the question is, what, like, what happened? Why did over 100 years, right? How did we get here? Right, so one, so you could point to you could point to politics, you could point to bureaucracy, but to me, I in general, like I think that when when you ever you give, first of all, you know, I'm not going to get into the politics side of it. That's a tricky question. It's church, state, separation. I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's the problem. I think the problem is when when one when one body has a monopoly, then politics doesn't help because, as we said, the Haredi party is kind of monopoly. But when there's only one, it's never good. Right? I think that's true in education. I think that's true in healthcare. I think that's true in everything. Whenever there's a monopoly, that's not good for the um, for the average citizen. I think that, which is again why I believe in certain elements of capitalism. I believe the competition is healthy. Um, I, because then people are in competition to create a better service and to do a better job. Well, which, uh, but there's Molly. I'll just push wait. back. There's one Ministry of Health that that there are enforces three to four kupot. But, they, but the Ministry of Health says the rules, enforces the rules, okay. and says what the standards okay, are. Okay, good. So the let me. So let's, doesn't get to. I agree, which is what which is exactly what I'm saying. And I happen to think our healthcare system is really good because it has a combination of it being centralized, which has been tremendously helpful, as we all know, in Corona. They can find every single person and find out, right? But it's also very helpful that it's all that it a is that there's that there's competition among the kupot and that there's I believe in sharap right I believe yeah I'm going to shorten it down but I believe that it's also not so terrible that people can also find ways around the system I think it breeds health to allow for a combination of a, of a central location but finding ways to, to give incentivize people to to maximize their competence, let's put it that way. And so that's why I would say when it comes to the Rabbanut HaRashit, I believe that Sohar, which is an organization that's, as you said, it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing, right? Because on the one hand, they're saying what I'm saying, which is we want to create healthy a healthy alternative to the Rabbanut, but we don't necessarily want to dismantle the Rabbanut and we want to work within the Rabbanut system, right? Which yeah, I, I sometimes- sure. I just want to clarify. Now we don't necessarily, we believe in the Rabbanut exactly. system, but we believe in a kinder and gentler Rabbanut system. Right. And but we are here to make the Rabbanut better. What they're tachless doing is exactly what I'm saying. They're creating competition, which challenges the Rabbanut. The Rabbanut doesn't like it, but I think that's very healthy. And they're, and they're, it's, they're already making tremendous inroads in weddings. They're starting to make inroads into kashrut. Um, and, um, I, and I think that that's healthy. I am not as in favor of people who work outside the Rabbanut system, right? There, and there are organizations like that, which I don't necessarily need to name, but I think you know them, right? That they'll marry outside the Rabbanut completely, right? Um, they'll, they'll perform marriages, unlike Sohar. I, I, I like Sohar's Gisha better, which is as long as we can work within the Rabbanut and say that we support the, large, the larger system and principle, because I think it is, as you, as you said, like parallel to the Kupot, it, it's a good thing to have it. Um, we're going to do that. But we're going to try to avoid the dangers of 
of of bureaucracy and politicalization by creating a healthy alternative that will hopefully provide better services for everyone. So Johnny, that's my answer. You come from you. I, I, I want to take you back out of the weeds. Molly sort of got into the solution, as it were. You come from uh, originally. I heard your accent once. You come from a place where there is a chief rabbi that does serve as a central authority for those who want, but he doesn't have uh, he doesn't have teeth. He's not doesn't have legal authority. He can't limit or force Jews to do anything. So you, it's that some combination, sort of what Molly was sort of what Molly was saying. Where do you come down with on this idea of having a central rabbinic body with enforcement, uh, with enforcement powers in the state of Israel, with power and authority over people and their not only religious, but their, their personal choices uh, in, the, in their lives in the world today. Okay, so firstly, uh, I'm very wary and I'm not quite sure that there is much value in contrasting chief rabbinates of diaspora communities to those of Israel for a whole variety of reasons. They're, they're completely different beasts. Of course, there are certain parallels one could find, but part of the issues that we are discussing are the unique qualities of a Jewish state. But let me just walk us through those last hundred years. Now, I'm not Johnny, I have history. to say, you've become really, really expert at deflecting my question and then going to decide to talk about what you want, which is your right, totally. I know, because I, I love that. Because well, I'm writing about what I want whilst Mali was speaking. <laughs> <laughs> so you asked me a different question. It's like, it's but, great. But, Go ahead. But I, um, I do want to give a little bit of whistle-stop tour over the last hundred years to get a sense Ooh. of where we're at without talking about solutions and then, and then answer your question. Because prior to 1921, uh, the British mandate felt that rabbinic uh, leadership in Israel was a bit like the wild, wild west. There were different batidin doing different things. And they said, for us to feel confident in what's taking place and for us to have a person to talk to without somebody else saying you're talking to the wrong person, we need a central body. We need an, an authority. And that's why in 1921, the chief rabbinate was created as an authority for that purpose. It's important for people to know this is already 27 years prior to the establishment of the State of Israel. It was functionary to be the address for these kind of conversations with the Jewish community. Because the, the British didn't want to deal with it. They said, you guys take care of your own, like a go like Correct, a but they also, they also knew they had to. They, had to they, they want to have one place to go to rather than... 14 and getting the Sikh Sukhim between different right. Rabbanim and Batitin. Right. Now, what happened then is Rav, Rav Cook is there. And Rav Cook says, okay, you want us to have an authority. I have a bigger vision. I want to blend authority with, with a, a certain ideology. Okay? I have a chazon. I have a vision for Medina Israel, uh, And it's rooted not just in Halakha Agada. And so Rav Cook kind of took the concept of the chief rabbinate, and by the way, anybody who's a historian may well correct me, but this is how I see it. He took the concept of chief rabbinate, but then presents it in a certain thesis, taking values, applying it to law, to the benefit of all the Jewish people. And though, sure, it would be an authority, it was meant to be an inclusive authority rooted in a deep sense of Jewish peoplehood. And the truth is, over, some, uh, over a long period of time, uh, well, certainly for some period of time, a lot of the Rabbanim were both recognized as authorities, but also recognized as being people who had a deep sensitivity to the wider Jewish peoplehood. Some of those, by the way, are my heroes. So people like Rav Shai Yoshevka and Rav Chaim David Levi are my heroes. They're chief rabbinate rabbis who were for sure authorities, and nobody would take that away from them, and the people who talked to them recognized that in them and wanted that from them. But they were also authorities because they spoke to the people and for the people. However, 
over a series of events, including famous cases involving people like Rav Gorin, what happened was the ideology of the many was represented by the will for the few. Uh, until that point, for example, Rabbi Eliashiv, people don't realize, was a chief rabbinate rabbi. He then he was, quit. A, he was the but he was serving the Beit Din Rabbani. He Rabbi Eliashiv. Right, and at the same time, not only do you have uh, shifts in terms of the vision of the chief rabbinate as expressed by its authority, you also have a rise of autonomy and a diminution of authority. So the chief rabbinate goes through changes internally through those who are at its but, but John, head. it's important to clarify. Their, their, their uh, um, refusal, I would say refusal, their decision to abandon or leave the chief rabbi was in protest of Rav Gorin asserting well his authority. I, uh, right. I, I, I think you were aware. I've written many essays. I know, I know on, you on have, but I'm saying I don't know if right. everybody's listening. Correct. It's, it's but almost, ultimately, it's, it's, almost r- ironic it's rooted in their like belief. They him exercising his authority. No, but correct, because they felt that his authority was rooted in his ideology, which was insensitive to a wider ideology that was uh, more reflective of uh, X, Y, Z. We could discuss it till... No, no, all I'm saying is that the thing we're discussing today was coming exactly the same then. They were just like people are like resent rabbinic authority imposing its will. No, but but the the point is, no, they they did... And this is Nukudati. It wasn't that we resent the chief rabbi having authority. We resent the chief rabbi applying their ideology, which in, in the eyes of people like Rav Eliashiv was a personal ideology to the Jewish peoplehood. Rav Cook said, I believe in a national ideology and I want that to be expressed with a national authority. Where there were issues, where there were flashpoints, and there were many. We're just, I just mentioned one, is where it was claimed that individual ideologies overtook a national authority and I say at the same time you have a rise in autonomy right more people feel more confident in terms of their own choices more informed about what's available out there and as a as a result what's become of the chief rabbinate is an authority disconnected with a clear ideology and certainly not one that reflects the greater Am Yisrael and what's ironically become is more Bateidin are doing things their own way back to the wild, wild west, which is exactly why the chief rabbinate was created in the first place. So there's a sense that there are lots of pros of the chief rabbinate. We could list them, and there are lots of cons. No, Johnny, please do. This is important. I don't want to list some. List some. Okay, so the pros are Jews in Israel eat kosher. Right. We could debate the Hsherim and how things are now. Let's not talk about right now. Let's think about the fact the state of Israel has been established. We're now in coming, you know, toward going to be going to our 80th year in some years' time, right? And the Jews in Israel eat kosher, and the food in Israel is you, you really work hard to find things that are not kosher, right? That's happened because figuring out the right balance between the demands of Kashrut. Uh, for the regular person and the regular restaurant owner. I know there are lots of quibbles. I'm not dismissing that. But the fact that major, you know, kosher food is, is how it is in Israel is, is basically based on the chief rabbin. And anybody who comes now and says, I want to change it, know that you're coming after the fact of what's been. As you mentioned, weddings and divorces, I know there are problems. I've read you know, many cases. But nevertheless, that Jews get married and divorce, according to Orthodox law, which has significant, Im, uh, you know, implications, is a huge achievement. Wait, does it bother that, you uh, though that that's imposed on someone 
who in a democratic society, a Jew, a democratic society would want to choose otherwise? Does it bother you or so doesn't it come you're Right now you're a, asking so the advantages, I, so I just right? wanna, This is an advantage, right. sorry to interrupt, but like, it's not just an advantage because like, okay, good food from people can get married. It's an advantage because it preserves a clarity about, um, you know, halachic status of people across right, the entire 100%. country. And I'm just I'm pointing out, like, Johnny, I'm jo Johnny I know, here. no, no, I'm just jumping in because I feel yeah, like, yeah, please. you know, what Johnny's saying is these are advantages it's not just, oh, because we're from, so we're so happy that, like, you know, people eat kosher. Or, or, or It's also an advantage for the larger community because it creates a status quo that, that, that is actually good also for the country as a whole in terms of clarity. That's, what I, that's kind of what I'm trying to add. Right. Sorry, Johnny. So, uh, uh, I wouldn't so, even just say no, clarity. Just I would say we talk about that. The, if you and Hamadina, the whole nature of the state, and the nature of the state is kosher. The nature of the state is you get married in a Jewish wedding. The, Johnny's, the, you guys are not, maybe you people on the, can't hear that Johnny sort of made a face. I truly believe in that. I really believe in no, it. No, 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 no. I believe in that too. No, so I just want to go back to what Mani was saying, not just now, but before, relating back to things. So the question is, you asked me about forcing, really, had a tough sorts. And my answer is the following. When the chief rabbinate rabbis, be them local or national, were seen to represent broadly me, and I'm going to use me as a more secular Israeli, uh, and as I mentioned before, a lot of my family more secular, then I didn't feel it was being forced because I felt they were talking to me and with me, even though they were more observant than me. So I used, I used two examples. When Rav Shai Yashiv Cohen went and did orthodox weddings to not religious people, they didn't feel he was manipulating them. They felt he was talking Judaism to them. They're proud to be Jews in Jewish state and that his ideology included them. That was, a, you know, central to the vision of Rav Cook. When Rav Chaim Davidovi did the same thing, that's what they felt. The issue now is the following. Not all, but in some cases. Where Rabbi uh, goes I would say the majority of Israelis still feel that way. It's important to say. I think a large right, majority exactly. of Israelis I, I, still feel that I, I, And I'm, pl I'm pleased you are saying it because, uh, you know, too often there are lots of articles which bash and criticize things which often do deserve to be bashed and criticized. But the great majority of Israelis do feel that way. Nevertheless, there are too many stories, and I've heard them, you've heard them, where that ideology which was there at the beginning, which was reflected by many at the start, is now only reflected by some today. And so there's a, you know, just to use a kind of a, a ridiculous thing, when my kids were very, very young, there was a book like, That's Not My Dinosaur, That's Not My Teddy Bear, right? Where people in that kind of saying, that's not my chief rabbinate. So there's a, there's a lack of feeling of identity with a body that's supposed to include the identities of the citizens of the modern state of Israel. Okay, I want to respond to both of you and give my input, and then we'll continue the discussion. But before we do that, we'll take our second break, and we'll be back right after this. Shalom, this is Rav Johnny Solomon, and I would like to tell you about the services that I provide to men and women around the world. Firstly, if you have a she'ilah, a halachic query, or a halachic topic you would like to learn more about as it applies to your life, and you feel that you don't have a rav with whom you can discuss this question, I offer online halachic consultations. Secondly, if you have some theological or spiritual query, or if you're in need of some chizuk, I provide spiritual coaching. And lastly, if you'd like to learn about a particular Torah topic, I offer one-to-one -one learning. For each of these services, you can book an appointment for a small fee at my website, rabbijohnnysolomon.com. 
which seamlessly, with the magic of Calendly, then appears in my online calendar. And within a few minutes, you'll receive a message with a Zoom link. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to talking with you. And we're back. Okay, um, I, I want to sort of respond to something to, to some of the things that Molly and Johnny said. Johnny started listing some of the benefits, and he listed the benefits in Israel. But I, I, I of course, deal with a lot of uh, not of course I deal with a lot of communal issues outside of Israel, outside of Israel as well. I help people if, if you have any if you have this issue. I help people who want to get married through Tzohar, uh find the documents they need in order to prove their Jewish status. Sometimes they're resentful. Usually they're fine about it, and we help them. We go through the process, um, but. Anyone who, who knows this, know, anyone, I, anyone who has dealt with this issue understands that as opposed to Israel and England, so Johnny said it's not comparable, but it is in a way because England, the chief rabbinate, keeps meticulous records. And if someone was Jewish in England, he knows that there's a record of his wedding in some rabbi's office somewhere that will prove that he and his children are Jewish, or she as well. And it's happened to me many, many times where, I, you know, we got married, my grandmother was married. And, and, and the rabbinate sent me the document that they had. So there are, there are benefits to ha- even in, you know, that, that, that are even outside of, 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 uh, of the land of Israel. But in many ways, the insistence of the chief rabbinate on a standard, on, on a standard of who is a Jew, has had repercussions and has ramifications around the world. Because yeah. Jews who yeah. want to be considered Jewish, and I'm not talking about streams, I'm not talking about the inter-denominational uh, inter, uh, issues, which are obviously f- profound. But a Jew who wants, who knows, I would like, I need to be Jewish according to, according to the state of Israel. According, I want my children to be able to be, mar- be married in Israel, to be recognized in Israel as Jewish. They know that either their wife or girlfriend has, will have had to convert under a, a, a legitimate or recognized conversion, or they already know lechachila. I better go marry a Jewish girl, because this quickie conversion that I'm going to do is not is not considered. And, it, and I'm telling you, from personal knowledge, that happens quite a bit, much more than you think. It's a more it's a more subtle subconscious choice that people make, because they're aware of it. So the I would say the ripple effect has ripples literally around the world, mostly for Israelis, not for non-Israelis. That's number one. Number two, let's say giur conversion. So you could argue that the arguments here about what's legitimate you're here and what's not legitimate you're. All I could tell you is that a number of years ago when I was a rabbi in America in the, in the early 2000s, the RCA, the Rabbinical Council of America, um, um, uh, went through a process called GPS. They adopted the Gabriel Protocol something something. I don't know, a GPS. Very clever. At least I remember it. Where they accepted a, a, a set of standards and there was tremendous debate in the RCA who are they to tell us what to do or not what to do? And maybe it's too machmir, and maybe it's not too machmir, but there was a sense that there has to be some seder. And I can tell you that in America, in major cities, it was the wild, wild west. Rabbis, orthodox rabbis, well-known rabbis, were doing quickie conversions that had very, very questionable halakhic legitimacy. And now all of a sudden, somebody else was coming in and saying, whoa, 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 one second. And therefore, that allowed the RCA that was not happy about it. And everybody knew what was going on to come in and say, like, the RCA has no teeth. It's a rabbinical organization that's just a, you know, a fraternity. But, but when the chief rabbi comes and says, you know, you've you got to get your house in order, that again has ripples not only in Israel, but it has, I think, positive ramifications around the world. Again, agunot. 
People talk about the Aguna crisis. In Israel, and I give Chief Rabbi, this, this Chief Rabbi, a lot of credit because he really took this thing head on in Israel. Okay, in Israel, the idea of Agunot is, is, is something that they take very, very seriously. I'm sorry. I'm trying to, I, okay. And they take it very, very seriously and with a lot of teeth, with a tremendous amount of teeth. Now, it might not be as quickly as we'd like it to be. It might not be in the tone that we'd like it to be. But the fact that uh, a person knows that if I don't give my wife a get, they can, they can, they'll take away my tudat sehut, they'll garnish my wages, and if I'm really a jerk, they'll throw me in jail. That has tremendous, tremendous power. And in America, all they can do is go on Facebook or Instagram and shame someone. And that sometimes has an effect, and it's important, but the, the, the effect, and even Israel now has a, the chief rabbi has a yichida that will go and, you know, go to other countries and work with other countries to try to, to affect. There are things that you can do as a government authority that you simply can't do as a private Beitin or you know, that doesn't have authority anywhere in the world. So I, I personally, like I, as I said before, I am in favor of this idea of having a centralized rabbinate, even with teeth, even at the cost, and I, I'm sensitive to the cost of, you would call it personal freedom, democratic society. I think that the positives outweigh the negatives. But I want to illustrate the problem with just a story I mean, I'm, I'm, I work for Sora, so we have an internal WhatsApp group, of course, and they shared an article about a very famous cafe called Cafe Kadosh in Yerushalayim that just switched its, its ashkacha from the rabbinate of Yerushalayim to Sohar. Why do they do that? Because the way they described it, it's because a mashkiach came in and started yelling at them why, you know, that they didn't have, they weren't marking the, the regalach, everything in the, in the store is chalabi, they didn't weren't marking it specifically with a chalabi sticker. And so he's like, I can't deal with this anymore. Why should I have to mark it with a chalabi sticker? The whole thing is chalabi, the whole thing is dairy, whatever. And I responded, I said, why would a mashkiach feel that he has the right to come in and start yelling at the workers? Meaning it's the, the whole power structure is upside down. You know, what, the, the fact that a person comes in, yes, you're the mashkiach and it's important, but you serve a function in order, in order to work with people in order to preserve kashrut. You don't come from below and you're not there to scream at people. You're there to enhance and help and work with people. And I think that's exactly what, Molly, you were, you were kind of talking about. You know, Sohar's, Sohar's innovation, it's Sohar, people don't realize, I guess they don't realize, they think that Sohar is mekil and that we don't keep the halachot and whatever. Sohar, first of all, is a rabbinate. It's, it's, it, it simply works through a number of different rabbinates. It works with the Tel Aviv rabbinate, the Sharm rabbinate, Gush Etzion, and, and we don't hide it at all. It's a rabbinate. It's, it's part of the Rabbanut Rashi. Its major innovation was two things. One, the rabbis are volunteers, so they don't take money, which I personally disagree with. I think they should be paid for their time. But the second thing is, they're nice. We, we work really hard to be nice to people. Somebody, whenever anybody calls me, and people only call me when there's a problem with their documents, and the documents are not sufficient that, to be approved right away. So they call me, and you can hear the lilt, and you can hear the fear in their voice. You can hear it. Like, hello, is this Rabbi Spolter? Or in Hebrew, shalom, is it Rabbi Spolter? You know, you know, I know exactly why they're calling. And they're like, oh my God, what kind of hoops is this guy going to make me go through? And the first thing I say is, dude, you're getting married, mazel tov, what a simcha. And it's like, they're like, you, you can hear their whole demeanor change. That, that somebody is here to help them. Somebody is here to try to make them, yes, there are standards, and I can't change the standards, I have no desire to. I don't make them up, but I'm happy that they're there but I'm here to help you, I'm here to work with you, I'm here to make it a positive experience. And if only right. the rabbinate, and, and that's what Sarah is trying to accomplish, and is accomplishing it, because now Rabbanu Yod know they make hours and they're nice to people, you hear it all around the country, because they know that and if they have point, a bad right? name, that's my that's point. Exactly, that is your point, that is yeah. exactly your point. 
And I wish the same thing were true with regard to Batei Din. I wish it wasn't about politics. I wish it wasn't true about Kashrut. But it'll get better. And it will. Because and as long as Sohar starts to, starts to go into Kashrut, even though they're not allowed to use the word Kasher, it'll fix it. And uh, Bezrat Hashem Gir Kalacha will also create a uh, powerful you know, movement in conversion. And that's why I said before, I think we have to work within the system to make it better instead of blowing up the system. The Johnny was looking But it's important to... Right, but it's important to identify, uh, and here, I mean, this wasn't our explicit intention to contrast or, 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 or you know, um, compare Tsar to some of the Ravanut services. But what you're saying there is it's nothing, well, almost, again, I'm, I'm well aware there, ca- there can be some particular instances, but this isn't a what people would call purely halachic thing. I spoke beforehand about the evolution and devolution of the chief Ravanut in terms of the the role of ideology, where it was initially one which was reflective of the many, and now it's become reflective of the few. One it, initially it was one which was much more visionary. Now it's a lot more uh, administrative and, and, and at times heartless. And although there are cases, and we met, you mentioned before weddings and kashrut and agunot, which have been handled well, there have been quite a lot that have been handled terribly. Now I, I will say to you, by the way, even the best of rabbis is going to get creamed. When he can't fix the problem, you know. Right, but so not the, but every the situation added, is fixable, and then they still the rabbit will still get blamed. And there's not there's nevertheless again, but you know, you know, I'll say t- I'll say two quick things on this. Number one is you're saying the value added in terms of of tzar is primarily your nice meaning. It's it's an, shall we call it an agadic thing which should be there, which has been lost, and that's a problem. When right. the question is when why they, was it lost, and how do you get it back? Is the only way to get it right? That's davar echad, which is essential. And the truth, I don't think enough people are talking about it. They think it's to do with the the rabbanut and halacha and authority. I'd say it's the rabbanut and agada and ideology, which is if you get that right, it would shape a lot, lot more. Point number two is the following. Um, I'm currently, I think I might have mentioned before, I'm reading a fascinating book called Upstream, which is about basically solving problems before they arise. The Rabbanut, and this was reflected by a number of chief rabbis, in, especially actually um, Rav Goren. I don't know if you're aware that Rav Herzog, for example, wanted all Chayalim to sign a, a, a basically a, a, a pre-divorce before they went out to battle. Rav Goren said, no, I'll firefight when things come up. And that's, uh, you know, unfortunately why there have still been many Agunot of, of Chayalim in the army. He was a downstream guy. Actually, the visionaries, people like Rav Herzog, also tremendous inspiration, thought differently. What we've unfortunately done is the chief rabbinate began with Rav Cook, with Rav Herzog, with upstream mentalities, with an ideology, with a vision. Now we've got these downstream administrative firefighting and getting it right, sometimes not. It's, we need to take a step back. It's not to do with the system. It's to do with the vision which should be driving the system. It's to do with the being proactive. You know, even if wait, certain wait, wait situations are not going to be solved. Let me ask you a question: Do the do the people in the chief rabbinate today? Do they agree with? If you ask them, do they agree with Rav Cook's vision? Meaning, it's one thing they, they, they you could say that they've got caught in this power strap, power trap, and the desire to retain their power and money and budgets and all those things. Do you think if you would ask both chief rabbis today? Do you agree, Rav Cook? He articulated a vision. Do you agree with Rav Cook? Do you think that that it should be something that represents, and you just can't do it for whatever reason, or would they fundamentally disagree and say, "Yeah, maybe he did believe it, but I, I don't really think that's true." I, I think that 
sadly, and it's reflected in everywhere. It's reflecting politics, reflecting communities. The truth is, this isn't just a chief rabbinate thing. We are way too migzari, right? Way too, uh, you know, interested in terms of labels. You know, Rav Cook. I'm not talking about every idea of Rav Cook. I'm, here, I'm talking about a certain ideology which shaped his vision of the rabbinate. But people nowadays would kind of object because they don't want to be associated with this, that, and the other. They, they would, I'd say one, in terms of chief rabbis, one would sound like he's agreeing, but not fully, and one probably wouldn't sound like, either which way, there'd be something fundamentally missing, because it, it's how you speak about every Jew, not just some, and what you're prepared to go out to battle to support every Jew, not just some. And, and, and so, I, I, I believe in the concept, I just think it's lost its way, and part of it is halakha, but so much of it is agada, so much of it is ideology, so much of it is about uh, that sense that you're talking to everybody. Because if you were to be, as I say, those everybodies wouldn't mind. In fact, they'd probably still respect that authority. Authority goes back to what Mali was saying in the beginning. Uh, when I have a rav, I give them authority because I have a relationship with them. I know they're thinking of me and for me. And at least my best interests are on their radar. If I don't think so, I, I take it away. And that's what's been happening in recent years. Okay, I want to, before I take to Mali, I want to mention something Mali mentioned vis-a-vis Sohar, but I think it's an important point to make. In reality, there really is no such thing as the Rabbanut Rashid. Meaning, in, in legal sense, in legal terms, and I think Rav Stav actually told us this when we interviewed him, and you can go back and listen to him, Right? Every local rabbinate, and there are like 170 of them, they legally, technically have independent authority. They have the right to make their choices, and this causes a lot of chaos about kashrut, but also about who is a Jew, and theoretically about giyur also, you know, technically. It's really interesting. There is no law about who can be megayer and who can't. It doesn't, there, there is no law. So the, my local rabbi can make one decision, and another local rabbi can make another decision, so that competition was sort of built in. What we've seen happen over the past number of years, actually, you know, a couple of decades, is a, I think an illegal or super legal, it's not against the law, but it's not in the law, a grab of power on behalf of the chief rabbinate trying to centralize authority against its own members, interestingly. So it's almost like the, the, the beast is eating its own young, as it were, and the solution to the problem is simply let people function, let rabbis who are your colleagues you know, do what they think is good for their local community. I imagine the community of Dimona has different needs than the community of Haifa. And rabbis need to, you know, they were always intended to serve their local communities. So I think Mali, like, it's a shame what had so hard was a response to this, to a, set, a power grab that in essence is, was not really a part of, it wasn't built into the system in a sense. And that, I think, is the problem. The, the danger of, and, and some people would argue, and I know people who do argue, any centralized authority inherently will grab as much power as it can because that's the nature of the beast. All right, we're, gonna have to, we're, we're almost out of time. Molly, I'd like you to okay. wrap it well, up. I, I Give think us your you're final thoughts. Some, yeah, I think you're raising some interesting points, and I think you're right. It, it's, it's always, it always comes back. Everything's always going to come back to how do you balance when you have, you know, there's always going to be competing values, and how do you take the best of the competing values, right? It's federalism versus states' rights, which is what you're talking about now at the end. Um, I'll just mention one thing, if people are interested. Um, I think people liked our, when we talked about that TV show, the Khan TV show about uh, that we did last time. Was it last time? 
about... Ayudah Chadash. Yeah, Ayudah Chadash. Yeah, yeah. So I'll say that um, Yair Ettinger just put out this show, that Ruby, you've been sending us the videos of them, about the 100 years of the Rabbanut, and one of the points he makes, so it's a, another TV show, you can watch it in clips, one of the points he makes, which is relevant to us as Arzi Weekly, he said, the Rabbanut has always been challenged, you know, as you said, and it wasn't always necessarily so loud, but, you know, by, by non-religious or anti-religious, who gives you the power? And what's been happening in recent years is that the challenges are coming from within the religious world, specifically from within the Dati Lumi world, from within our world. Um, because that, that I think that there's a sense in the Dati Lumi world that the Rabbanut has, as Johnny said, lost its way in, in certain ways. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting, that's, that's what's interesting to watch, right? What's interesting, and, and again, I think Sohar is a result of that, and there are other, there are other, there are other movements within the Dati Lumi world that are a result of that, and I personally, again, as I think we're all saying, I, I hope that in the Dati Lumi world, we have the courage to fight for what we think is right and, and make the changes, but I think we also have the wisdom to um, see the value, right, in, in, in the system and to, and, and to preserve what, what needs to be preserved. Okay, thank you very much. I think we'll wrap it up here. Johnny, do you want to add something? We're good? No, I th- I, firstly, I want to say shukach to you both because, you know, we're, we're three people, each with a certain level of expertise and understanding. We're talking candidly about something which is often given very, very brief analysis in, in, in newspaper articles, often with a twist. Here we're speaking, I think, openly. I, I don't know whether... I hope we've shared some... Uh, useful wisdom and shed some light on the topic, but I, more people have to have more con- candid conversations about this, where we're not being defensive nor attacking. We're just trying to tell it is it. So just honestly, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. So I wanted to thank my colleague, Rabbi Johnny Solomon, and Rabbi Nimali Brabski. I'm Ruben Spolter. If, uh, if you liked our podcast, please do us a favor and share it with your friends, with your colleagues, with your congregants, with your students, with your teachers. We want to get the RZ word spreading all over the world. Share it on social media. Uh, and if you actually uh, listen to us on, on Apple, whatever it's called, the Apple Podcast now, please give us a rating because that'll see, have help more people to see it. All right, my name is Ruben Spolder. I think I mentioned that. I want to thank my son, Pitachia, who wrote our music and performed our music. And uh, wish all of you a wonderful week. Bye, everybody.